0: Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guest is Chris Killory, Managing Director of QBE Re. The insurance market has been through some comprehensive changes in the last 12 months, and so has QBE Re. In this podcast, we delve right into the evolving appetites and revamped strategy at this well-respected medium-sized reinsurer. In the past, QBE RE was viewed as a highly competent and nimble trader in the markets in which it operated. Today, it's evolving into a player that is looking to become a long-term across-the-board partner for the right kind of seedent. Chris hopes that this strategy will deliver a growing, balanced portfolio and a more predictable and less volatile level of earnings than in the past. Chris is a qualified actuary and has had a really varied career to date, which has already included multiple roles within the wider QBE group. But, Unlike the apocryphal actuary to be found as the butt of hundreds of insurance jokes, he lays out his stall with great eloquence, and his ideas on how to build a more balanced portfolio make for fascinating listening. Listen on for many wise insights and a clear vision for how a mid-sized reinsurer should navigate this market, and how it can best complement and benefit from its ownership by a major global insurance parent group. Enjoy the podcast. Chris, welcome to The Voice of Insurance.
1: Hi, Mark. Lovely to meet you.
0: You're relatively new in post here. So for anyone who doesn't know you, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself just briefly and your career to date?
1: Thanks, Mark. Yes, I've been in this role since October, November last year. I guess just a little bit on me... I'm from Dongster, the north of England originally. Still get up there relatively. Donnie. Donnie, still get up there relatively frequently, especially to watch football games. You'd have been impressed. We they've did. got some
0: horse racing up there, haven't
1: they? They do do horse racing. People, think I think, know the, the race course, they know the station, and I think increasingly getting to know the football club. Uh, you'd have been impressed, actually. We did a QB Re off site up in Dongster at the football club, and we had representatives from a couple of our supporting brokers there. So I'm not sure it's quite going to replace Monte Carlo just yet, but I think we're... uh... (laughs) It's going to be a lot cheaper. Well, I don't know. Maybe not. I think there was definite economic differences between the two. But so, yeah, so from Doncs originally, still get up there relatively frequently. I currently live in Putney, West London, my wife, Jules. I'm actually in the process of buying my first house at 45, so we will be moving out of London very soon. Now felt like a good time to sign up to a mortgage. I felt interest rates were getting to about the right point that I, I wanted to get in. He's not doing a lot of credit reinsurance, I hope. Well, I mean, it, yeah, I... <laughs> I'm not sure if that's your assessment of me as a credit risk that you feel it's uh, <laughs> that could be it could be a challenge for the market. And then in terms of career, I'm an actuary by background. I, I did actuarial science at university, and then stayed in London, worked for a couple of Lloyd syndicates. So spent a little bit of time in consultancy. And then in 2012, I remember that just after the Olympics in London, moved out to Bermuda. I had a bit of time with the regulator there, the BMA. But it's actually while I was in Bermuda that I first joined QBE. So. I worked for QBE. What oh, was it, Equator That's right, Yeah, So yes. that's the internal reinsurance vehicle. Yeah. It was a great first role, great introduction for me to QBE. And, and I've actually been incredibly lucky with QBE. And I, I think at times we don't talk about this enough, but this role that I've gone into recently, which I love, it's actually the sixth role I've done with QBE in three different countries. And so, yeah, I say, probably we don't talk about it enough, actually, we create these opportunities within QBE to, A, give people generally the opportunity to work in different parts of the globe, but also... Trying people in different roles. you know If we sliced you open, obviously, God forbid that we would do that, we'd be fine QBE, like the letters through a stick of seaside rock. Yeah, I'd like to think so. Like I've been incredibly fortunate, really, my career full stop, but I think certainly during my time with QBE. And obviously, I joined in an actuarial role. Then, when I was in Australia, I did a, the CFO role for the Australian Pacific business. And during the pandemic 2020, I moved to London to do the CFO role for our international business. Which, as you know, the international business includes our Lloyd's portfolio, uh, Canada, Europe, Asia, and also our inwards reinsurance business. And then I was fortunate enough towards the end of last year to get the opportunity to move into this role as managing director for the reinsurance business. And I think when I look at my career and the roles I've done with QBE, whether it's been on the actuarial side or the CFO side, I've always had a real bias towards capital management, capital allocation, optimization, portfolio management. So even into sort of the different roles, there's always a little bit of a bias there. And I guess that's the bit I'm excited now to have the opportunity to try and bring a little bit of that to the reinsurance role. So you're not going to be out there with your pens at Monte Carlo, sort of signing
0: slips at, uh, you know, down at the Metropole swimming pool. Is it right to say that you're not going to be an underwriter? You're going to manage a team of underwriters who are going to do the underwriting for you, and you'll be looking at the big picture?
1: For many, many different reasons. One, including the fact that I probably wouldn't be particularly good at it. But I think the other thing I see, actually having moved into this role, I've got a newfound respect for the underwriting skill set. Yeah, there probably was a little bit of me coming into the role thinking, well, you know, I understand models. I understand exposure management. Surely we can kind of do the maths on all of this and we'll come up with an answer. And I think having come into this role, it's been a great opportunity for me to realise just how nuanced underwriting can be and also just spending a lot more time with our underwriting talent. We're really, really fortunate.
0: Because there's still the actual negotiation. And there, there's always a few points here and there to be made and of the communication and the, how you communicate those things and what stances you take. And they're very human sides of it because the numbers are the numbers, but they're not always the same as the way you communicate or you negotiate. That's
1: exactly right. And I think that is one of the things that I see that our underwriters do so incredibly well is thinking through how we sort of manage the cycle you know there's going to be ups and downs and so there's going to be relationships that we just want to stick with and how you manage that and how you sort of manage delivery of the messages you know it, this is not black and white that you know you're in or you're out how you manage that how you think about managing the portfolio and one of the things I'm really loving about this industry i guess just the quality of talent that exists in the reinsurance industry you know on the broking side and the underwriting side but also just how important the individual relationships are We talk about in all aspects of the industry just how important relationships are. It's a pretty small world, and so the importance of those relationships. I suppose it's a higher
0: level of trust. I mean, you have to trust insurance companies with our major assets, you know, our houses and cars and other things. But for reinsurance as a purchase, is absolutely essential because without it, most insurance companies will be insolvent quite quickly. And so, you really want to trust those reinsurers that they're going to come through for you when in your hour of need, you know, when the storm comes
1: through, when the big one hits. Absolutely, and we'll no doubt we'll sort of talk about that a little bit more. And you know, I think one of the things that we see as being a great asset for us is we, you know, we're trading off an A plus rated balance sheet, which is so important for the buyers of reinsurance is having that confidence. But I think also it's not purely the fact that the reinsurer will be there to pay the claim and to make them good at the time, but also about having the confidence that the underwriter where it makes sense on both sides is going to stay in the relationship for the long haul and that's that's a really key part of our strategy moving forward is how we all behave post an event so getting on to more
0: strategic stuff so there have been changes in your appetites been well communicated and we'll, we'll talk about those in more detail so you want to be able to go to a place where so we've made these changes but now customers can really look to us and say we're in these classes we're in these territories we're in these geographies because we want to be, because we think over the cycle we'll make a good return on our capital in there and we will be there the day after a loss and the day before a loss the same. So it's that consistency you want to be getting out to people to say, look, we're here in this class, it's because
1: we want to be in it and we're going to still be in it in 20 years time. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Mark, when we think about our strategy going forward. And for a lot of people, that won't be the right strategy. There's absolutely a valid strategy out there Of being very tactical, of identifying when do I get into the market, when do I get out. And there's been an element, I think, in the history of QBE RE where actually that has been our strategy. Well, there's nothing wrong with that.
0: You're not Munich RE or Swiss RE or Hannibal RE. They have to be in everything sort of all the time. They can't really be nimble and say, I'm in this, I'm not in this, because once you've got sort of 15, 20 billion dollars of premium, you probably can't be that discerning. You obviously manage your portfolio and your volatility and really macro terms. But for a smaller player like QBE RE, you could be nimble because you are able to move quickly,
1: but you've decided you don't want to be that. Yeah, look, I completely agree. And, and actually, you know, if we look at our history, that has been how we played. We've got a great history of that have managed the cycle really, really well. The times where the reinsurance book has been double the size, times when it's gone down to half the size or less, and just managed the cycle very effectively. Done that in the right way with brokers and sedents to make sure everything's sort of well foreshadowed. And going forwards, there will still be parts of our portfolio where we will be a little bit more tactical and identify when's the time that we can grow. Because things there. are naturally cyclical anyway. I
0: mean, yeah. you know, if everything's coming off and you, you might still stay on, but you're going to have to reduce your line size and broker understands and also be probably there's tons of capacity out there so they don't mind you coming down in size and turning something into more of a watching brief, waiting for the price to come back yeah. up again.
1: There will always be parts of the portfolio that will go up and down with the cycle and we'll look for opportunities to get in or to become more balanced. One of the things we talk about a lot within QB generally is sustainable growth. And as we look at the size of the QB re-franchise now, you know, we're at the point of being in the region of $2 billion. So we're no longer, I guess, a rounding error in the context of the broader group. We are a core part of the broader group. And so when we look at our growth trajectory and where we're supporting, we want to ensure we're finding relationships that actually we can stay in for the long term. There'll be times when we go up and we go down, but we are gonna favor relationships where we can write a broad product suite, where we can write across programs to ensure we're getting real balance in the portfolio That gives us more flexibility to stay in for the long run, as opposed to going through those ups and downs where we're halving the portfolio or doubling it. And say so both of those strategies are entirely valid, but for us, as we want to ensure we're a contributor to sustainable growth, for us, it's finding those seedants that we can dedicate capacity to, we can write across their product suite. And that will then give us a diversification that allows us to stay in longer term. I suppose
0: you find the right seedants that are growing profitably, then they do the growing for you, don't they? I mean, if
1: you can hang on and keep
0: your participation, then your reinsurance room will naturally grow anyway. I think that's
1: right. And we talk about this a lot around that customer strategy, that seedent strategy. We can't be all things to all people, but we often sort of talk about that maybe we can be all things to some people. I think that is something else I'd call out about our strategy. This has been established well before I came into the business, but looking at where I see our real strengths is, we have a really diverse product suite. Pretty much you know, any product you can think about in the reinsurance sector, we can write. You know, We're not particularly niche on any product. If you think about the geographies that we play in, we've got a growing office in New York, in London, in Dublin, Brussels, Dubai, Bermuda. But- You're out in Far East in Singapore? It's something we often talk about, but we don't actually currently have a reinsurance presence in Singapore. We've got an important insurance franchise out there. And so we have increasing conversations around, is that something we could do? But at the moment, we certainly have, we're represented in Tokyo. Japan's a, a big market for us. But yeah, so I look across the board, we can support clients across the globe, across their product suite, and we're trading off an A-plus rate to balance sheet. That means we do have something pretty significant to offer. I think in the past, we haven't always been as joined up as we could be in terms of how we turn up and present ourselves to clients or to brokers and we've probably had lots of smaller individual relationships and i think there's an opportunity for us to bring that product suite that geographic presence together and then what that allows us to do is to prioritize our capacity and our capital to those buyers who will allow us to support them across their program across the products that they're buying on we also look for more consistency in how these students buy across the cycle yeah you have nimble buyers and nimble
0: sellers. And yeah,
1: we all know that there are some very nimble buyers as well, as well as the sellers. Yeah, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But again, as we think about how do we ensure we've got a diverse portfolio, how we ensure that our growth trajectory could be a sustainable one, you know, we do prioritise those students that we think have got a consistent track record for how they buy and you know, will give us access to the programme. Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow, but this is just a
0: reminder that you could be advertising right here, right now and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision makers in the insurance industry. And you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The Voice of Insurance has just run through 300,000 downloads. If each of those had had a 60-second ad in them, that would make 83 hours of talking to the industry for a fraction of the cost of alternative media. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com and I'll do everything I can to get you started. But having said that, and in fact, we had Andrew on the show, Andrew Horton, CEO, saying that reinsurance is definitely in growth mode. But obviously, you have trimmed property cat appetites and exited retro, perfectly understandable. You might want to do that. Obviously, it's a very hairy class to be in, obviously, going to get all the property cat when it comes. How do you square that, though, if if that's a season that does need that property cat as well? Is that something that you give them some of that property cap aggregate, which is obviously you don't have a great appetite for, but presumably you have to take that if you want to be a long-term partner for that seed and for that good seed, and hopefully that's going to have a great relationship with you, you've got to take some of that cap with it, presumably.
1: Exactly. I think what we've done over the last 12 months, and we certainly, I think, deployed this really well going into one, one is we've really recognised the value of that property capacity. So when we talk about, this is not just within QB Re, but across the whole group, Portfolio optimization, portfolio balance is what is really critical. You know, it's, it's less around trying to find products that are less volatile. Actually, you know, we like volatility. We only exist because of volatility. You know, our role is to take volatility off someone else's balance sheet and bring it onto ours. But our key role is building that balanced portfolio that allows us to accept that volatility that in the aggregate gives us a bit more stability. And so yeah, if you actually look at where we were going into one this year, I'll come back on the retro point because I think it's an important one. But outside of Retro, we actually deployed a fairly similar PML or fairly similar capacity in the aggregate that we had done previously. So it wasn't that we actually pulled back our support, but we became a lot more disciplined and deliberate in how we deployed that capacity. Is it right to say, if I'm summarizing, to say that you give that to obviously to your
0: best customers, when you know that that CAT aggregate is worth more than it was before because it's very much in demand? I won't put words on the earth, but you might say, well, if you want us to write this, cat, obviously, we'd rather have a broader relationship with you across the board, across classes. Yeah, I think that's right. There's
1: two things we looked for when we were deploying property capacity. One is it was key for us that we were at sensible attachment points. Again, a really sensible strategy could have been going into one one of rates were increasing, especially on the lower attaching layers, rates were very high. People could have sort of run towards that. And our approach was not to run away from property, but it was to really focus on where we were attaching. We wanted to make sure we are attaching much higher up stacks. And a key part of that was we felt by moving up property programs, we could move ourselves away from some of the secondary perils, some of the noise, some of the less well understood exposures that attach more frequently and move ourselves towards areas that are well understood, well modelled, we can build portfolios around it. So A, we were looking for sedents that were able to let us play higher up the stack, yeah. or were able to actually just retain more themselves and, and I think Does that doesn't a good you, journey there. Your seedant
0: profiles that you have to be slightly bigger companies themselves. So they're gonna to have to have their own bigger balance sheets in general. Does that change the profile of the sort of people you're targeting?
1: I think not exclusively, but there's certainly a correlation there between some of those bigger companies that can afford to take more significant retentions. So there certainly has been some overlap there. I think the other thing we've recognized as we've moved up stacks is sometimes we are putting down bigger lines or offering up bigger capacity on programs. So one of the key things that has meant for us is, going back to what I said before, you know, in the aggregate, we're deploying a similar level of capacity. So it has meant that on some of the lines that we had that were attaching a little bit lower, we have had to pull capacity back from. But we've done that in, I think, a very structured way in close collaboration with our brokers with the seedants to ensure we didn't sort of cause any significant disruption by doing that but meaning probably doing more with less yeah, yeah so it's sort of reducing that overall seed count so we can make sure we're prioritizing capacity a to the ones that can take a bigger retention, but also to the point you were making earlier mark those that will recognize the importance of that property capacity and then give us access to the more diversifying products whether it's specialty marine casualty Etc. And, and I guess the last thing I'd say on this, although overall our PML on the property reinsurance side was similar in terms of what we've been deploying, if we compare where our property book is today to going back out a few years, it property used to be over 50% of our premium. Today it's less than a third. But that, the movement in that statistic is actually more being driven by the growth we're achieving on casualty and specialty than it is from us pulling away from property. I presume this
0: was reasonably well received in the brokers because you weren't the only reinsurer doing that, uh, moving higher up. I think everybody was doing something similar and perhaps trying to pass those secondary perils back to the decedents to say, well, that sounds like an insurance thing, not a reinsurance thing. We reluctantly accepted some of that when the market was much softer. But these days, well, why should we get small wildfires into a reinsurance programs? It's not what it's there for.
1: Again, that's right. I think we communicated early. We had those discussions early. I think it was well-received by the market that it was understood that in the aggregate we're looking to deploy a similar amount of capacity, so we weren't sort of pulling away. And I think that was well-received, but also having those conversations early. And look, your point is right as well about thinking about that relationship between insurance exposures and reinsurance exposures. Yeah. And where do we all play along that value chain? know Because it moves does but it's interesting for us in terms of you know our capital provider we are absolutely part of a broader QBE group that has the ability to deploy capital through insurance or reinsurance or retro as we discussed and so we've also got to be very clear on where do we play because we want to ensure that we can support our partners long term and so we've got to be careful about what's that overlap between where our insurance colleagues are playing and where we play as a reinsurer and if you think about our core territories, some of to our Pillar 1 territories of Australia, New Zealand, Europe, North America. We can access the insurance there through our insurance division. Yeah. Yeah, They're writing there. And so what we're trying to do is we will still absolutely, as QBRE, write business in those areas. But what we want to ensure we're doing is we're playing at a different part of the loss distribution, a different part of the curve. A difficult year for insurance is not automatically a difficult year for us.
0: You're not going to write tons of proportional business in those areas, are you, with small sedents? Because it wouldn't make any sense. That's
1: right. That will make sense for other markets. But one of the things we are trying to change is being much more deliberate about that in terms of where do we play versus insurance. And then that, again, allows us to sort of protect that capital long-term as opposed to being, well, we've had a a hell event in Europe and we've got to add on reinsurance to insurance. I think trying to sort of move away from that has been key. So with Retro, we'd never go back? It's, It's one of those where you'd never say never We've got a long history of writing retro and actually writing retro successfully, which is something in itself because you know there's a long history of lots of people not writing retro that successfully. that's right yeah you know, I look at that Our underwriters have been writing that you know, I commend them actually for how well they've written it, but when we think about yeah I think you had this conversation with Andrew, we think about portfolio volatility and earnings volatility and trying to get stability, and we see rates are getting Sort of more attractive levels on retro. You know, we're a big buyer of retro, so we certainly see how attractive they can be from a seller's point of view. But return on capital is one lens, but we've also got to look at what does that mean from an earnings volatility perspective. And for us to have an event where we're paying losses through insurance, reinsurance, and retro, I think it's difficult for us to justify taking on that level of earnings volatility. But, you know, we'll continue to monitor the situation. It's just a, another way of deploying property capacity, but from an earnings volatility perspective, I can't see us changing our appetite in advance of one one. So you're involved in all specialty classes
0: of reinsurance. Obviously, we've had this big event with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. How's that changed things? Obviously, we've been through at least one renewal since. How's it reset?
1: I mean, we've got a successful specialty franchise. You know, we do right marine and aviation business and have a good track record there. Again, key for us has been balance so we have seen significant movements in rate we've seen various changes in exclusions that people are putting into programs for us it sort of created an opportunity for us to come onto some programs that people have sort of moved away from some of those aviation exposures i think for us though we certainly haven't looked at this as an opportunity for us to now go significantly overweight in that area and where we have provided a little bit of additional support on the aviation portfolio in particular, it's really been for those students that we're supporting really across their program. So it's a bit like what you're saying about Property
0: Cat. Again, it's something's in demand and you're happy to do it. But again, you'll make sure
1: that you get that broader relationship on the back of it or you're supporting the people that you really want to support. That's right. I mean, we are... One of the things we've been very keen on, we've appointed recently Jamie Cook as our Chief Partnership Officer. And one of the key things we're working on with Jamie is looking at what do we see as the embedded value of a seed. So rather than sort of looking at products in isolation, what do we see as the actual embedded value of the seed, not just in any one year, but also looking at how long we think that relationship would last and the consistency of buying. And what that does mean is with the market disruption following Russia Ukraine it can create some challenges for our students. And so we look to support them to really sort of show up and say, look, we genuinely mean what we say about partnership." So it gives us a good proof point. But we haven't seen it as a time where we've thought, let's get in and see this as an opportunity to grow a, a large standalone portfolio. And obviously, because of rates moving how they have, it certainly hasn't been something that we've had to look at as a lost leader, but I think we're just conscious the volatility that it could bring if we were to do it in any significant level. So again, yeah, but it's all through this client
0: lens, big sedent lens. Everything's going to be about how do I broaden a relationship with the seed that I want to broaden that relationship with.
1: That's right. And it gives us a proof point to the sedent that we kind of mean what we say when we say that we are going to look to take a you know, holistic view of the client. But I think it's sort of more and more with our sedents that they are also valuing finding partners that will support them across the board because they understand that that level of diversification for us helps them have more certainty going forwards. You know, they recognize, like with all these relationships, there's going to be parts of their portfolio over the cycle that are going to run hot. We are going to pay losses or we wouldn't exist if we weren't ready to pay losses. Yep. But what they want to have the comfort is that we're not going to pull capacity because they've had a loss on one part of their book and therefore they're really valuing that broader relationship as well because they feel that kind of locks us in and makes us more predictable in terms of the capacity we offer something that really big
0: reinsurers they've got those deep relationships that the student also values the insights they're going to get from their reinsurer you know the big four are able to do that kind of thing is that potentially an ambition of yours then to say well I really want QB re on my program because actually I really like talking to them. They're always telling me insights about my own portfolio that I didn't realise myself, or you know they're adding value in different ways. Is that an aspiration? In many ways, it is. Yeah, you know, I can't see us getting to a point
1: where we're You're not quite big enough to be able to say, right, you know, we have uh, analytics teams for everybody. Uh, yeah, that just isn't going to be our model. We're not going to be at the scale where we're going to have this sort of big R and D function. There's a couple of things though that we do see. You know, one is. There are certainly partnerships, a great example is actually some of the businesses we write out of the Middle East. One of the pieces that we see in those relationships actually is where we can tap more into the broader QBE. So we have certainly played roles with some of our partners that we're partnering with across the board where we've been able to give them access to research or insights from a compliance function or research that we've done that's sort of supporting the broader insurance business and actually making that knowledge and insight available there's something that andrew was talking about that's starting to happen yes absolutely and 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 we're just much more comfortable having those conversations and just sort of building up that say it's not in in fixed
0: territory you know we've got a massive dno portfolio worldwide here's what we've been learning yeah
1: we we also have some very strict rules around ensuring that level of information that is anonymized Yeah. yeah and i think we always kind of Bias towards the conservative in, in that realm. But there's lots of more general sort of market knowledge and insights that we are able to share. But also, this is, again, one of the really key learnings for me as I come into this role. Sometimes it's a bit of a cliche, we talk about underwriting the underwriter. But this has been a real proof point for me as to what we mean by that. When we're sort of doing a casualty quota share, whether it's at 1-1 or mid-year, we can do all the thinking we like around where do we think inflation is going to be, where underlying rates is going to go. But once we've signed up to that, quota share, we really are in the hands of the market we're supporting. Yeah, And so our ability to look at and where we deploy capacity is typically with those that we've been able to get confidence around their track record for managing the cycle. And not only are we able to sort of look at their experience of what they've delivered in the past around managing the cycle, that's a key decision-making mechanism for us but also just looking at the level of transparency we get during the relationship. And so we've, we've been having numerous conversations with our seedants around how many public DO deals are they seeing, then how many are they writing, and it's giving us a lot of confidence that our seedants are managing that cycle really, really well, which is critical for us. The other key point for us when we write these pro rata deals and we're looking for the right seedants, I think yeah. it's come up a few times about it's so critical for us to find the right partners. Clearly, we're trying to build a diversified portfolio but it's also key for us to find partners that themselves have diversified books that yeah. are not so dependent on one particular income stream, whether public DNO, transactional ability or whatever, that they have that ability that they can come off business. So they can manage an entire portfolio. They're not so hooked on one particular income stream that would make us more exposed. So it has been a key part of the underlying process. Find good partners and they won't let you down. That's right. And those that are committed first and foremost, sort of managing their own portfolio. But there's lots of opportunity for us to actually get evidence of that as part of the underwriting process. Well, something at the the hyper
0: end of casualty is cyber. And it's been some interesting interaction with reinsurance. We've seen a few cyber ILS transactions trying to get off the ground. But reinsurance has been a bit of a blocker or potential blocker to cyber growth because obviously cyber growth has still continued. What's your view on that? And we've certainly had a lot of investment in modeling, in understanding of the systemic risk and the big aggregate risk that we all know is in cyber. And obviously, we've had more action on the wording side of things. Is all of this making you more comfortable as a reinsurer to say, right, this is going to be something we can really support and that we're not going to hit the
1: buffers? We've been growing our cyber portfolio for a little while. We grew it again at one. i I've been coming into the role, been really impressed with a really good underwriter that we have looking after that portfolio for us and also working more broadly with colleagues. It's been a growth area for us. We write it predominantly on a quota share basis. And again, it comes back to the same themes that we've touched on. When we write it, we like to look to support teams that have got a long track record, very transparent with the data they provide, and have a well-diversified book. So we're taking a share of of a well-diversified portfolio. The reason that we've been able to get comfortable with the growth that we've achieved on cyber is there's some very clear loss ratio caps so we can write it with a really clear view on what the absolute downside is that we could be exposed to. And we talk a lot about portfolio management and and being able to get insights to the book. One of the key things that I've been really impressed with, both how we kind of manage the portfolio generally, but also at the point of underwriting, is having that knowledge of what is our aggregate exposure to an underlying insured? What's our aggregate exposure to any one industry? Of course, cyber doesn't respect the boundaries of industry or region, but us just being able to look at how well diversified the book is, that we're confident we're not exposed to an oversized loss from any one industry or insured is being key, but also just having that comfort with what the absolute downside is. People are happy to buy on that basis with the loss ratio cap. They are. And look, we're all playing this game of trying to link capital to risk and finding ways for the insurer to be able to sort of transfer some of that risk onto another balance sheet trying to sort of find central ways that we can do it with loss ratio caps, I think just makes it much more palatable because we're all committed to trying to find diversification in the book. And when you've got risks like cyber, especially with the models still being in their relative infancy, yeah, so We license the models. There's a lot of variance between
0: those models. There was a recent Guy Carpenter report that was very interesting. But of course, the methodologies themselves are very different. They're all coming from slightly different philosophies at the same time. So they're bound to come with slightly different numbers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we stay really, really close to the developments on this. But the level of convergence between the models is just not quite there yet.
0: I'm sure in 20 years' time, it would be much more like Property Cat is now. That we absolutely. Can. And it's yeah. the same
1: journey that, that the industry would have gone on with Property Cat. But as being able to look at the models, seeing how they move. And that, that's the other challenge is the models will move quite a bit from year to year as they're developing. Over time, we expect to see some more convergence. But until we do, I think having that absolute stop, knowing where the loss ratio caps take us to is key. And also just spending more time understanding you know, what is our exposure to individual insured industries, just gives us a good feel to that level of diversification in the book. Over the last few years, we've had... I wouldn't say unprecedented, but it's been very
0: significant investment in the reinsurance intermediary space. With some new entrants, new players, quite a lot of investment, a lot of talent moving around and being dislodged by different factors. In your view, has actually changed the dynamic of the reinsurance market at all? Well,
1: look for us, we touch with the brokers throughout the value chain, in terms of on the insurance side or. As receiving business through brokers, or as buying our own retro programs, so we we sort of have interaction with the brokers throughout the chain. Overall, I feel choice is good, and so the fact that more choice may be there, I think, can be positive for us. That relationship with the seadent is really, really key. We have a great relationship with all the brokers, yeah, and we respect the seadent's right to choose which broker they wish to work with, and we can be entirely agnostic to that. I guess kind of one concern that could always be there is, as we've sort of talked about a lot during this conversation, our focus is on having seedants that have consistent buying patterns, are willing to pay at rates that allow the product to be sustainable across the cycle. But, you know, we often talk about our role as QBEs, trying to find novel solutions to, to meaningful problems. If actually the investment in the broker side and the additional interest that comes in actually helps bring new products to market and helps us sort of think about things a bit differently, that can only be a positive. We're in an interesting time within the whole insurance industry.
0: We're sitting in London, a lot of digital success happening. There's a greater level of confidence in some of the latest digital reforms, particularly in the London market, really going to come to fruition this time. Thinking more big picture about that as a reinsurer, how do you think this is going to change things, Obviously, particularly when we remove a lot of friction? You spoke earlier, for example, about really prioritising those sedents that will give you granular data. And of course, now they may well be able to plug in an API or something, that kind of thing.
1: Does that get you excited? I do get excited. and Then you use exact that word. I think it creates a huge opportunity for us, but I think for the industry generally. We've talked about a lot around diversification portfolio management and the more transparency we can get and insights into underlying exposures that our students have that will be coming into our portfolios it just gives us so much more opportunity to be more deliberate about how we construct the portfolio and I think often what will happen is where you don't have that transparency you've got to make assumptions and normally when you make assumptions you try and do so of a conservative approach and so it probably means there are times when we walked away from business that actually may have sat really well in our portfolio because it diversifies in a certain so way. Because people don't tell you what's in the basement, you're
0: always going to assume there's an ugly monster lurking in there, whereas in fact there might have be been just a couple of old bicycles or something. You know?
1: That's right. And the portfolio can change and it may be that we are currently underexposed to old bicycles. And I suppose it's better to know than not to know in the long term in insurance, isn't it? That's right. Sometimes having a portfolio made up purely of the best cedents does not actually give you the best portfolio. And, and Because they have the highest seeding commission and they drive you down on everything. Well, also because potentially the best seedants may all be writing exactly the same <laughs> best insurance business. And for us, we value diversification and portfolio optimization is kind of everything to us. So so us being able to get that underlying knowledge of what's in a a Cedent's portfolio. And that's not just on the property side, but on casualty and other exposures as well, it's key and and the closer we can get to make that more real time is key. And not only for us as a reinsurer, but also, yeah, we hugely value our partnerships with our retro markets. And we really want them to be able to see what's in our portfolio, especially over the last 12 months or so, we've been making quite a lot of changes to our portfolio. And the quicker we can evidence and prove that to our retro markets, can be really valuable as well and we're all trying to play this game of linking capital to risk and the more we can be transparent over what that underlying risk is so people can build that into their portfolio is key and also i think it just gives us more of an opportunity in that dialogue both with our insurers and our retro markets to be able to say well actually what really concerns us about your portfolio the bit that's really driving the model particular areas that we can have a much more sort of nuanced conversation than maybe we have been historically You know, if you got rid of those via facultative reinsurance, then we'd all be happier. That's right. And and we can just have that discussion based on data as opposed to sort of having to sort of second guess where we are. It's interesting what you said about if you were lucky enough to reinsure all of the best
0: sedents that might actually be a problem? Is it down to sort of group thing that they'll all end up ensuring this one street in the town, which is deemed to be the best street? And then, of course, that means you've got, you end up with accumulations. Is, is that the kind of thing, or kind of group think that we think things are good and then we find out
1: they're not so good later? This is the important point, is actually they may all be exactly right. If we think about certain industries, Certain industries will have invested more in risk management than others just because of the nature of the business. So if you're looking for a company with great risk management, you may favor a particular industry. You know, Cyber could be a great example of this. And they may absolutely be the best risk managed. You can still have a loss, though. But you can still have a loss. And then the problem <laughs> is, is you get that loss. It hits the industry. You then suddenly are exposed to an oversized loss because all of your clients are getting hit at the same time. Whereas... Actually, if you sort of getting. It's, it's you can charge the right rate for the deemed not quite so good risk, but that's fine. Completely. I think you know, you've still got to get the right rate. But actually, and that rate can legitimately vary by reinsurer because for reinsurers, it's all about the balance in your portfolio, making sure you're not overexposed by any one peril, region, industry, client. And so, if you're adding on a risk that diversifies very well, you would legitimately be happy to charge less for it than someone that's adding on a risk that is pretty much on the same street next door to where you've already got a tonne of exposure. Now you're coming in, you're running a business with people,
0: lots of people all around the world. Is there a QB re culture that you want to engender in them, or are you happy just sort of go along with whatever the wider QB group is already doing, which is doing quite a lot? Of, certainly, from Andrew Horton's podcast, there seems to be a lot happening there. Was there something specific about the re part, a special badge that you get them all to wear or something? We haven't spent a lot of
1: time thinking about the badge, but I think like <laughs> we will take that away as an action to be focused on the badge. But Andrew often talks about bringing the enterprise together, and obviously, when he talks about bringing the enterprise together, he's talking about the broader QB. And I think there's a real opportunity for us to recognise the value of being part of the broader QBE more than probably we have done historically. And when you think about the strategic priorities that QBE as a group has called out, two of those are dedicated to people and culture. So it's clearly already something that we're rightly calling out has been critical for the group. And we want to absolutely benefit from those priorities and look at them ourselves and a couple of things that are within those broader priorities that I think really apply to QB really and probably where we will double down and really focus. One is around empowerment and I think actually one of the things we're already very proud of but I think can continue to work on is the amount of underwriting authority that we cascade down to our underwriters and I think actually there's there's even more opportunity for us to do that. I think us empowering our people so that they can make decisions quickly you know sedents and brokers can feel that they are talking to fully empowered underwriters and that a decision is not having to be referred back to london or australia i think is key to bring that in more what that does mean is we've got to put some other controls around because trust them and verify well yeah we absolutely trust the underwriters we're so fortunate to have such great underwriters already within the franchise. But I think the key thing for us is not becoming overweight in any particular area. The the underwriters will absolutely write. Good business has got a long track record for doing that. But making sure, in order to empower them, to have more authority is how do we sort of put that structure that just avoids us ever becoming overweight in a particular
0: area. So we'll continue to look at that. So I suppose you can give them the technological tools. There are lots of new technologies being invested in, certainly underwriting benches, that kind of thing, so that the underwriters really got everything at their fingertips. So well, actually, if I do this, I'm going to be overweight in Brazil suddenly, or or I'm going to be overweight in certain type of manufacturing or something. Again, presumably, you're
1: going to be investing all those tools to really help them completely so we've got budget set aside to invest in exactly that over the next 12 months but we're also adding some senior hires to the business that will also help with that so one of the roles we're currently in the market for is a global head of portfolio management which would have a team that is really empowering the underwriters on as close to a real-time basis as we can with just that knowledge of how their portfolio is shifting where we would see them being overweight against certain tolerances and where we think there's opportunities for them to grow so we just want to ensure we're empowering the underwriters with that information and for us that's really meaningful because it comes probably back to my second cultural priority is we are launching more global roles within qbre historically we had a fairly limited number of roles that actually looked across the whole portfolio yeah one is, is jamie's that we referred to earlier as chief partnership officer looking at how do we show up to clients and brokers around the globe to much more joined up and the other one is this global head of the portfolio that is, again, looking to bring our exposures together. Because I think that's the other thing we really want to encourage far more, probably historically, and it served as well, we'd operated in some silos, whether it was by product or by territory. But actually, how do we ensure that our people feel much more part of a single QBRE that we can actually talk to the story of the whole of QBRE and create far more opportunities for people to move around the business To actually spend time in different offices, I think that's going to be a really key thing for us. And then, I guess, the final two aspects of the culture that we're looking to move on as well is around performance. We really want everyone to take complete ownership of their portfolios. So, recognising they've got that empowerment and they can be excited about their businesses they're running. So, a real understanding of their performance and portfolio management that we've talked about. is really everyone see themselves as portfolio
0: owners. And tie, presumably, some of that remuneration to that performance given the full incentives to make the most of it
1: i mean it's one of the things we often look at actually is how do we encourage people to really see themselves as part of a joined up qb organization i suppose you don't just reward their numbers you also reward
0: how well they've done those numbers and how well they've collaborated and helped others and all the other stuff
1: actually i've been having some conversations today on mid-year reviews and we become much more focused not just within qb but across the group when we talk about performance as an individual's performance around the what and the how and so yeah the what i think we've always had some pretty good conversations on. But now we're becoming a lot more focused on the how. And, and part of that how is where we've got parts of our business that are going through challenging times or there's an opportunity to grow at a, at a faster rate. How do we actually incentivize people to move away from their current portfolio to go and support someone else and actually be much more joined up as a business? Chris, earlier on
0: you said you've been really lucky. I don't think that people who have all the brainpower and then the studiousness to then become an actor in all that discipline are ever lucky they've made their own luck and when when i meet actresses also who are great communicators then i think that's not just luck as well so thanks so much for spending some time communicating with me it's been really interesting some of the insights some of the things you've said i don't think anyone said in the same way on this podcast and we're now 200 episodes out there
1: so thanks very much chris i really enjoyed talking to you and mark thank you so much been really lovely meeting you and hopefully we'll spend some time together again soon thanks very much
0: well i hope you enjoyed today's episode if you did Don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass.